This is Chris Brooks. Thank you for listening to this edition of Equip. Be sure and subscribe for free so that you don't miss an episode. For more information, visit our website, equipradio.org. This is Chris Brooks. Thank you for listening to this edition of Equip. Be sure and subscribe for free so that you don't miss an episode. For more information, visit our website, equipradio.org. Well, hey there, friends. Welcome to another exciting edition of Equip with Chris Brooks. I'm so thrilled that you've joined me today. Can you do me a favor? Strap on your seatbelt. We're going to navigate through the contours of culture, as always, with the lens of the biblical worldview on. But before we do that, let me remind you, this is the day that the Lord has made. He has given it as a gift so that you and I can rejoice and be glad in it. So let's do just that. Let's follow the words of the Apostle Paul. Let's rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. Those are the words of Scripture, and I greet you with those words every day as a reminder of the goodness and the grace of our God towards us. Also, as a motivation for mission, it's the love of Christ that compels us, but we are called to give a witness for the things that we believe. Today, I really want to talk about our convictions and how to communicate them, in in particular in a world that is so full of complexities and those who have uh, competing ideas of what's right and what's wrong. You know, the question of what's right and wrong falls up under a broader category of uh, a study called ethics. And whether or not you realize it or not, we are constantly engaging in ethics. Every time you and I are confronted with a moral choice, having to make a decision about what is right, what is wrong, we are engaging in ethics. The real question is, how do we know what's right and wrong? And can we explain and defend our perspective with those who may have a countering perspective? Today, I'm really grateful to have invited on a guest who's going to help us to think about this Uh, in particular in light of a case that has captured national headlines. Maybe you've heard the case of Kate Cox. Kate Cox has uh, taken a lot of, uh, or received rather, a lot of attention. Uh, She is uh, a woman who's been living in Texas. She and her husband got the news months ago that they were expecting. They were overjoyed to get that news. But it wasn't too far into the pregnancy when uh, her doctor shared with her the diagnosis that her her child, the baby within the womb, had a chromosomal condition known as trisomy 18, and uh, that the prospects of this child uh, living a long life was uh, very slim. Uh, The doctor advised an abortion, but yet, as many of you know, Texas law prohibits an abortion, except in the case of the endangerment of the life of the mom. And so this went through several legal uh, battles and challenges, ultimately deemed by the state Supreme Court as, uh, as not being permissible for violating the state law uh, that prohibits abortion. I want to talk to Scott about it because many opponents of the pro-life position have pointed to this as an example of why uh, anti-abortion laws are harmful for women. Is that the case? Scott Ray is uh, someone who I respect uh, tremendously. Dr. Scott Ray is the author uh, behind Moral Choices, an introduction to ethics. It's now in its fourth edition, released in uh, 2018. He's also the Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University and a Senior Advisor to the President for University Missions. Scott, how are you today, brother? Are you there, Scott? Uh-oh, I think we lost Scott already. Hopefully we can get him reconnected uh, soon uh, so that he can uh, help to join this conversation. I'm going to open up the phone lines as well at 
888-528-3675. And part of what, what I want to do today is be able to take your questions about objections that you get from friends, family members, and loved ones who uh, say, hey, uh, I don't agree with the pro-life position. I certainly disagree with these laws that seem to be imposing your faith, your perspective upon other people. Maybe you've gotten some of these objections. We want to help you to be able to respond as we look at this particular case of Kate Cox in Texas. Scott is back with us now. Scott, how are you, brother? I'm well. Good to, good to be with you, Chris, and Happy New Year to you and your listeners. And looking forward to this conversation. Well, I'm grateful for you joining. I talked in the introduction, maybe you heard it, about the work that you're doing there at Biola. Uh, your book, Moral Choices, now in its fourth edition, uh, released in 2018, as well as the work you do as professor of Christian ethics at Talbot School of Theology. Share a little bit about your area of focus there, in particular in the bioethics space. Well, my yeah, my thing in Christian ethics is in bio- bioethics, uh, which is has to do with decision-making mostly at the edges of life, the beginning and ending edges of life. Uh, this one that you're referring to, Kate Cox's case, is, is actually both of those because it's at the beginning of life, but it's also a decision that has to do with the end of life as well. Uh, so... That's, that's yes. been most of my work. I spent about 15 years consulting with a series of hospitals in Southern California on, matter, on matters of bioethics, yes. uh, and I've written consistently on it. I, I remind my dean that if he ever thinks about letting me go, just read the front pages of the newspaper. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that's a good reminder. Let, let's just, I gave a layman's definition in my introduction, but, but if you wouldn't mind, uh, how would you define ethics and Uh, Help our listeners to understand uh, how often we are engaging in ethics, uh, sometimes not even aware. Well, I'd put it the way Socrates did when he said, we are discussing no small matter, but how we ought to live. Yeah. And that's really what ethics is about. Ethics is about the decisions that have to do with right and wrong and character and integrity. And I would actually make a a slight distinction between ethics and morality. Morality is actually refers to the content of right and wrong, what the substance of, of right and wrong is. Ethics has to do more with how you determine what's right and wrong. Uh, so most people use those terms, ethics and morality interchangeably. I don't have a big problem with that. But just so your listeners know, technically, yes. those are two somewhat different things. Yeah, and, and and let me just say, there may be someone listening to us right now who's trying to, as a young adult, determine what course do I want to take in life? Where should I focus my area of study? I, I would highly commend not only Biola University more broadly uh, and the uh, School of Theology, but more specifically, considering studying under someone like Scott Ray uh, in the area of ethics, it is a critical area of focus. You know, every law, we're in an election year, and I like to say this, Scott, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Every law has an ethical assumption underpinning to it, and we have to recognize that if we're going to be uh, honest about our political conversations And just as in this nation, every person has the right to give their case for how we ought to live, Christians have that right as well. Isn't that true? Yeah, and I would I would suggest that to go a little further. That yeah, you're right that every every law has a moral dimension to it. I mean, even things like driving on the correct side of the road presumes respect for life and property. Because we assume that somebody who's zooming down the freeway going the wrong direction has respect for neither of those things. And I, but I go a little further and I say, I say that, you know, every law is the, actually the imposition of somebody's morality. Yes. And I would, I'm one thing that, that just drives me nuts is hearing people in the culture say, I'm accused religious people of, of imposing their morality on the rest of culture. And I just find I finally was in the middle of a debate with a group of physicians and hospital executives on on a, a different subject. I finally just said when they brought that up, they said, I am so tired of of religious people being accused of this because every law is imposing somebody's morality on the culture at large. Well said. And so and so it's not just religious people that do this. 
Uh, yes. And there's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, because yeah. er, because that's what that's what every law actually is attempting to do. Yeah, and to not have that would be having a totalitarian form of government. And, uh, and, and for us to be able to have the type of government, the democratic republic we have, in, implies that we, you and I, can compete in the marketplace of ideas and hopefully the best ideas will win. Let's go specifically to the case of Kate Cox. Why do you think this captured national attention? Well, because she's a very sympathetic figure and her case is heartbreaking. Uh, and I mean, you, you said this correctly in, in the way you introduced the case, you know, she and her husband were thrilled to have, to have news of the pregnancy, but trisomy 18 is a devastating genetic abnormality. Um, and it's not, I wouldn't say it's automatically incompatible with life, but there are numerous complications that ensue most you know, most babies who have trisomy 18 don't live more than, you know, two to four weeks. Uh, although some live, you know, some live as long as a year. Uh, and I just, just read recently about the oldest living person with trisomy 18 is actually 40 years old. Yeah. Uh, And let me just disclose for the purpose of this conversation that, uh, one of our dearest and closest friends that we have uh, been in friendship and relationship with has a trisomy, a daughter with trisomy 18. And uh, if I'm correct, she just celebrated her 11th birthday. Good and, for her. Uh, and uh, has, uh, has uh, been a, uh, just a wonderful blessing in our life. Again, I agree with you with many complications. I've watched the sacrifice of her mom and dad as an act of love and care for her. But I did want to disclose that, that when I read about Kate Cox's case, it's not something that uh, feels distant uh, because of our connection to uh, our dear friends. Yeah, and I think the way way it's been presented in the media is that it's like a death sentence. Yes. And that, that Kate Cox can count on having a stillborn child or a child that will die within the first two weeks. Uh, and if that's the case, the argument is that, you know, why, why, why delay the inevitable? Uh, why not just abort the child? Everybody's happier. They grieve and get on with their lives uh, and hopefully conceive another child. Uh, yeah. But it's, yeah. not, it's, not quite, it's not quite that simple because yes. the Texas law does allow for exemptions although it is very restrictive about access to abortion, but it does allow for exemptions when the, when the life or health of the mother is significantly threatened. And here it looks like, you know, and I'm not a physician, but from everything I've read about trisomy 18, and this is the, the opinion of the reason the Texas Supreme Court did not allow for the exemption was that even though it, it you know, trisomy 18 has lots of risks for the child, there really are no additional abnormal risk to the life or health of the mother. The only thing I can think of would be in trisomy 18, the, the head of the child is, is misshapen uh, and is not, not the normal size, not the normal shape of a, a child without, without these genetic abnormalities. And so likely a, a, a natural vaginal birth would not be a possibility uh, and a C-section would be, requ- be required, which does yeah. pose additional risks. But, you know, we do you know, hundreds and hundreds of C-sections every day without incident in this yeah. country. Let's go back to the case, some of the details of the case. I just want to present this, and then we're going to talk about the law uh, in Texas because other states have laws restricting abortion as well. But we're using this case as a, an, a, a, an example, launching off point for a broader discussion. And we'll talk about um, how we as Christians should think about this. But Kate's, uh, Kate Cox's doctor advise an abortion, as many doctors do when there is the prospects of a um, uh, a special needs uh, pregnancy. I, I hate to say this, but the reality is is that special needs uh, children very rarely are encouraged to be born by physicians. Uh, but then Attorney General Ken Paxton in Texas stepped in. And uh, there was a, the, the court order was given that the doctor could not uh, terminate this pregnancy. And uh, uh, the attorney general upheld this. And ultimately, it was debated in court. And uh, the Texas Supreme Court eventually 
got this case and ruled in favor of the attorney general upholding the uh, restriction to abort. And uh, last I heard, Kay Cox was committed to going out of state for the abortion. We're going to talk about this because this is a real-life example. So often we talk about pro-life issues in a vacuum or philosophically, but I wanted to have an ethicist on with us. I wanted to have Dr. Scott Ray on with us today so that we could talk about a particular case in point. We're also going to take your calls as well. So if you're calling in, stay on the line. We're going to try to get your calls in at 877-548-3675. That's 877-LIVE-675. Go to our website, equipradio.org. We'll be right back. Have you been wanting to memorize scripture, but just haven't found the right way or the right time? I get it. Scripture memorization can be daunting, but it doesn't have to be. I have an easy way to get you started right here at the start of this new year. It's a practical step-by-step guide called Memorizing Scripture, and it's yours with a gift of any amount to equip. Call 888-644-4144 or visit equipradio.org. Welcome back to Equip with Chris Brooks. Maybe I've said it, but if you didn't hear it, Happy New Year from our team to you. We're so grateful. We're thankful for all of God's grace throughout 2023, and we are so fired up and looking forward to a phenomenal 2024. And as we start out this year, we're mindful that it's God's grace and your generosity that allows us to be here. So I pray that we will start this month off with a tremendous outpouring of generosity. The mission of Equip, the need to give relevant and biblical answers to the tough issues facing our culture is as great today as it's ever been. Uh, But in order for us to do this, to stand on the front lines of our cultural moment, we need your support. So if you could support us today with your most generous tax-deductible gift, I would encourage you to call this number, 888 644-4144. That's 888-644-4144. The website is equippedradio.org. That's equippedradio.org all month long as a way of saying thank you and expressing our appreciation for your generosity. We have a tremendous gift for you. It's a book by Glenna Marshall entitled Memorizing Scripture. Now, I'm going to be doing this. Uh, My wife said, hey, I want to join you. Many are joining this journey of memorizing Scripture. I know as a kid, many of us start this process as Christians memorizing Scripture, and then we kind of taper that off. And by the time you're an adult Christian, you're not doing it at all. And if you came to Christ as an adult, odds are you probably have never been encouraged to memorize Scripture. But there are so many blessings, so many benefits that come with meditating on God's Word. So we love to get this into your hands today as we start this journey out, this year out, and memorizing Scripture together. Why don't you go to our website, find out more, equipradio.org. Scott Ray is my guest today, Dr. Scott Ray. He's an ethicist, in particular in the area of bioethics. We're going to get back to our questions about the Kate Cox case in just a moment. But, Scott, I do want to go to the phone line. Sam is listening in Mendenhall, Mississippi. Hey, Sam, thank you so much for listening to Equip. What's your comment today? Just a uh, brief uh, kind of personal experience I have uh, with this. Uh, First of all, my sister had trisomy 18, and that, that's kind of my personal experience. Uh, yeah. She was born in March of 96, and she died at nine years old when she was uh, in 2005, just a couple weeks after Katrina. And yeah. I'm currently in seminary studying under Dr. Evan Leno, who wrote oh, yes. the book Ethics as Worship. And so I heard ethics and wow. I heard trisomy 18 and I felt <laughs> compelled to call. Wow. Um, wow. But my dad in uh, 2010 started a company called Brandy's Hope Community Services uh, after my sister. And wow. it is now the leading service provider for uh, people with disabilities uh, in the state of Mississippi. That's and tremendous. And community-based service providers. Uh, yeah. So, and, and the... If you go on Brandy's Hope Community Services dot com or Brandy's Hope dot com, the testimony is there. 
Um, I just yeah. thought this would yeah. be a an example of and, and the doctors. There were some doctors that actually, you know, I was just a I was probably five or six years old when she was born, but uh, when she was uh, and they had found out that she was going to have trisomy 18. Some of the more liberal doctors uh, wanted my mom to have an abortion. Yeah. Uh, due to, yeah. you know, their, their faith, uh, they felt that it was ethically wrong to do so. And it turns out that, you know, uh, their heart for Brandy, my sister, uh, turned into a company that uh, helps people like her and is uh, doing so on a, on a, a, a big scale in the state of Mississippi. Well, Sam, first off, thank you for your call. What a tremendous story. Uh, I think it encapsulates a number of things that I want to get into, Scott. So, Sam, thank you for calling. Thanks for your parents' tremendous work in um, Mississippi. Love Mendenhall and, and grateful for you, brother. Uh, but but there is a presupposition here that uh, Kate Cox has been told by the medical community, and that is not only is this pregnancy not viable, and and I question that premise, but that somehow the child won't have value or impact. Now, that's something I'm assuming here, and I think stories like Sam's communicate the opposite. His sister Brandy not only lived beyond birth and beyond a few weeks, nine years here, and clearly a tremendous impact through, on her parents, on her brother, and he, and even now all the families they're serving with disabilities. Scott, what do you say about those assumptions? Well, Chris, I think it's actually presumptuous to assume that unhappiness and disability necessarily go together because I just don't think that's true. Uh, and you, you're absolutely right that in the vast majority of cases when there are genetic abnormalities that are far less problematic than trisomy 18, the couple will get, most of the time, they will get unrelenting pressure to end the pregnancy. And here's, I think, the tricky part on this is that the, the burden of proof has been reversed in, the, in these types of cases. Here's what I mean by that. If, uh, you know, if, you know, when my wife and I had our, you know, had our children, uh, we had normal pregnancies. And if we were going to end, if we we're going to end a pregnancy, the burden of proof was on us to, to provide a rationale for why we were ending the pregnancy. But in cases of genetic abnormality, that burden of proof is reversed. And the burden is on the couple who wants to keep the child. And in my view, that, that shift in the burden of proof is actually inconsistent with the right to life. Because mm. if you have the right to life, you don't need to justify your continued existence. Mm. There, 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 is, there is no reason that you have to provide for that. It's just that's a right, that, an inalienable right that you have. And I think it's just, it, what, this, what this case is so interesting about, and this is where, you know, Sam, I think this is so helpful um, to hear his, you know, the story of his sister, uh, is that, you know, we, we, it begs the, the question of what kind of a thing is the unborn child? Yeah. And does, d- does disability compromise a child's right to life? Okay. And that's a different question than the Texas law suggests. The Texas law is about a, a disability, a genetic abnormality compromising the mother's health, not the child's. That's a really important distinction to make. Um, and I, I, I want to be really clear about this, uh, that, that a person is something that you are, not something that you are able to do or not do. And we've, we've gotten the philosophical cart before the horse when in the culture we've said that if, only if you can perform certain functions do you qualify as a person. Okay? But, but I think the way the scripture teaches it is just the reverse. And that is that you because you are a person, you are able to perform those certain functions. Okay? That's, a, that's a really important difference. Um, and I think our culture has gotten this entirely backward. Uh, and most of the pro, I think most of the pro-choice movement has gotten this backward too. That we, we, we are, uh, because we are a certain type of thing, 
a, a human person, we are able to do things like have rationality, have communication and consciousness and, and morality and th things like that. Those things don't make us a person. They reflect who we are as a person. Yeah, they don't define define us. I, you know, I think of Kate Cox, and and I don't know Kate. I do know the story of Norma McCorvey. Norma McCorvey, for those who don't know, was Roe in the Roe v. Wade case, um, and she felt at some point she became a, a follower of Christ and communicated that she felt that she was a political pawn that was ultimately used to advance. Um, uh, the pro-choice, pro-abortion uh, argument. Uh, you know, I feel for so many moms like Kate Cox who are being told something that is philosophically presumptuous, that somehow the child that has a disability, uh, special needs, is not valuable to their life, that automatically it means that the balance of happiness is lost and that uh, this child can't have a positive impact and contribution. I want to talk more about this with Dr. Scott Ray after the break and take your calls. We'll be right back. Hey there, friends. Welcome back to Equip with Chris Brooks. So grateful for you listening in today. What a great day it is. It's a Monday, and it's a great day for us to be thinking about what it means to live, share, and defend our faith. It is possible, and I think incumbent upon us as Christians to be both critical thinkers, to think critically, and to live compassionately. You can do both. We don't have to have a truthless grace or graceless truth. Truth and grace go hand in hand. As a matter of fact, the words of Jesus in John chapter 1, verse number 17, the law came through Moses, but the grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth are not mutually exclusive virtues. They go hand in hand, and I hope that our broadcast models that each and every day. Dr. Scott Ray is my guest. He is the author of Moral Choices. It's an introduction to ethics, fourth edition. Uh, it's an even greater invitation, I think, to study deeply in this area. We need more men and women who are able to help the body of Christ to think uh, through uh, the basis of right and wrong, the content of our moral choices as well. Dr. Scott Ray uh, teaches at the Talbot School of Theology there at Biola University. I can't encourage you enough. My Biola education has benefited me every day. I, I literally mean that. Every day I come behind this microphone thanking God for my education at Biola. And so I encourage folks to consider finding out more at our website, equipradio.org. There we have links for you to find out more about Dr. Scott Ray and about the book, Moral Choices. Today we're talking about uh, the pro-life argument, but in particular in light of a case that took place in Texas uh, concerning a pregnant mom, Kate Cox, the state attorney general there upheld, along with the state Supreme Court, uh, laws prohibiting abortion. Her uh, baby uh, was forecasted to have trisomy 18. Uh, she went out of state for the abortion. And uh, many abortion advocates have argued this is why these laws are wrong. Now, Scott, I just want to just give the syllogism that supports the pro-life position. I'd love for you to just uh, interact with this for a minute. Th this is the logical basis, and I borrow this from Scott Klusendorf, who wrote a book called The Case for Life, that there's two premises and a conclusion. The first is that the taking of innocent life is wrong. The taking of innocent life is wrong. If that follows, the second is abortion is the taking of innocent life. Therefore, the conclusion, abortion is wrong. How would you respond to that, Scott? Well, I think it's basically correct. Um, although I think here's how the pro-choice person would respond to this. Uh, and that is that there's a distinction between a human being and a human person. Mm. And it's true that you have, you have human life 
from conception forward. I mean, every textbook in embryology and obstetrics will tell you that. Uh, but philosophically, the pro-choice person had, will say, which you don't have a person until the, the bar is cleared on certain you know, non-negotiable functions uh, like, you know, rationality, uh, uh, possibility for relationships, self-consciousness, things like that. The problem with that is that uh, there are lots of times in, in life when people who we would agree are full human persons are tempor have temporarily lost those capacities. Uh, somebody who's in a reversible coma, for, for example, or somebody who's under general anesthesia, at least if it's, if it's being administered correctly, you hope that they've lost those things temporarily. Mm -hmm. um, and for the pro-choice person to say, well, that, those are just temporary. What that means is if they are appealing to something else, which is they don't specify, but they're appealing to something else besides those functions that gives the person who temporarily has lost them the right to life. But that, that applies just as well to the unborn child who has, is not, does not yet have those, some of those functions because it's not developmentally appropriate for them to have them yet. Uh, they just haven't, they haven't actualized those capacities along the developmental continuum. And so that, that I think is, that, that's a, a major problem, I think, for the pro-choice person. Um, and I think, you know, Klusendorf is right. Um, that, you know, in essence, the founding fathers did not give their lives so that women could take the lives of their offspring. And I think our founders assumed that at, from conception forward, you have a full person. And the scripture, I think, clearly teaches that as well. Uh, let's go back to the Texas law. For those who uh, would say this is this is far too restrictive, look at what it led to. It led to... Kay Cox having to go out of state to get an abortion, that these types of laws are just going to lead to, quote unquote, more back alley abortions and women putting their health and life at risk. How do you respond to that argument, Scott? Well, I want, I want to be, be careful not to underestimate uh, what Kate Cox was going through. Sure. And I don't want to underestimate the challenges involved in yes. raising a child who has some of these challenges. Yes. But nobody in the state of Texas prevented her from going out of state. Uh, you know, nobody stopped her at the border, you know, saying, why, you know, why are you going to New Mexico or wherever she had the abortion done? Uh, and I think this is, you know, this is, a, I think, something that needs to be clear. Even after Roe v. Wade was overturned and the decision was the decision about abortion law was left to the states, over half the states in the country doubled down on access to abortion. Mm. Uh, I mean, in my state of California, ab absolutely nothing changed for women as the result of Roe v. Wade being overturned. Now, in some states, it did change. And Texas is one of those that it was a pretty radical change. Um, and I think they do have they do have an exemption for uh, heightened risk to the to the mother's life. Sure, uh, sure. I think there's also an exemption, if I recall, I think there's an exemption for cases of sexual assault. Um, although I think we should we should all be be clear about this, too. The number of the number of cases in, you know, in, in which the mother's life is seriously jeopardized, I think, is very small today. Uh, we have we have much, much better ways of treating difficult pregnancies than they did in 1973 when Roe v. Wade was passed. I uh, think that one of the things, Scott, and I just want to hop in here, being yeah. in a state, Michigan, in which we, like California, have doubled down in many ways, have rolled back some of the protections that I think were very reasonable for the uh, for the preborn. Uh, I just want to say that the language that was on our ballots uh, a year or two ago, what was known then as Proposal 3, uh, was the health of the mother was in endangered. Mm -hmm. And that included, and this is an important addition, that included mental health. Yes. Now, talk about that because we assume when we hear health of the mother, physical health. But no, when, when you include yeah. mental health, how does that change the discussion? 
well it opens it opens the the exemption door a mile wide for just about and everything for just about everything and i think what what is what is often not recognized is that the decision about whether it constitutes that risk is made between the woman and her physician Mm-hmm. Unless, unless the law is clear on what exactly constitutes those, you know, those conditions. And in, in most states, the law is not particularly clear about that. Um, and that's, I think that's actually the case that's, that's related to this in Texas that actually is going to be heard by the Supreme Court is, is requiring the Texas law to, to, more, to be more specific about what those conditions are that justify the exemption. You know, right now in Texas, it's pretty, it's just the, the life of the mother, which is very rare. In Michigan, you, you know, you all reflect the, the Doe v. Bolton decision, which was handed down the same day Roe v. Wade was handed down in 1973, and said that it's not just the mother's life, but it was her health. And, and it included emotional, psychological, and what, what the court then called familial health. Yes. Which had to do with the with a, a woman having more children than she can can, can reasonably care for, uh, and so you know, for one, the physicians who make those decisions are not experts in those mental health things to begin with. Uh, but it it opens the door to virtually anything that's a risk to the mother that could be could be put under that umbrella of the mother's health. Yeah, and it could be sadness or depression or whatever the case may be uh, that that comes into this, making it basically permissible for any abortion to take place for any reason. It's kind of like uh, divorce on uh, on the grounds of uh, irreconcilable differences. Well, right. I mean, once you have that, you have kind of no-fault divorce, as it's been called, and all all limitations are thrown out the window. I bring this up because a report put out by the Lozier Institute, you're familiar with them, Scott, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they do a lot of research in this. Uh, they have put out a report that says that 80% of moms who kept their children five years after report being happy that they did these are moms who were thinking about abortions, who uh, kept their child, looking back now, saying that they were happy that they did. So the emotional anguish, I'm grateful that you did not dismiss that. I don't want to be guilty of that. I can't imagine w- the pressure, in particular adding the national attention, that Kate Cox uh, has experienced. There's an anguish that comes along with all of it. Um, pregnancy is intense in and of itself without those additional things. But I will say this, that those, um, the, the emotional impact in all of those things in the short term may change over time. So again, presumption, there's a lot of presumptions that are built into these decisions, uh, that ultimately are talking about the highest of consequences, the reality of an abortion is you cannot reverse it. A successful abortion that takes place, it cannot be reversed, and we need to be aware of that. Let's try to go to the web uh, to the phone lines really quickly. Kaylee from Rockford, Illinois, has been online. Kaylee, got about a minute before a break, but I wanted to sneak you in, Kaylee. Thank you so much for calling. What's your comment? Yeah, so uh, actually my daughter has trisomy 13, um, and it, again, is a very rare genetic disorder. One of the basis is that people use for abortions, and so obviously we feel very passionate about this discussion. My daughter is four years old. We are denied medical care um, mm. on the same you know, topics of your discussion. We had to um, move states in order to have her, which we relocated for, because we were denied care on the premise of the tax it would have on my body. She would never survive. And so reading the article on Kate Cox and the survivability of a child with trisomy 18 is just lies, honestly. I mean, it's individual for sure, but um, the amount of triumph we've seen when parents pursue life for their child, which is a basic human right, um, we have seen so many families 
work against those lies that they are being told and are thrust upon. I mean, it wasn't an option. They were ready to sign us up for an abortion. And we had to fight the medical system and go outside of state and find providers who are like-minded to us because the view of a child is not holistically the same. Um, It's overarchingly in our country that a child is not a a baby. A child is not a, a life worth saving. Um, and so we did have complications during the pregnancy um, and, you know, the continue to fight. And my daughter's now four years old. Well, first off, uh, Kaylee, thank you for calling. And what a great story of triumph for your daughter. We praise God for you and for your beautiful, beautiful baby girl. We're going to take uh, our final break. Uh, so grateful for you listening. Grateful that Scott Ray has come by to equip today. You stick and stay. We'll be right back right after this. Friends, I want to take a moment to invite you to our next Equipper webinar coming up on Thursday, February 1st, right after the program. With the spread of Islam, it's crucial that you and I are equipped to think and speak biblically about this religion. And I'll also explain the history and teaching of the Muslim faith. Bring your questions and join the discussion about understanding Islam. Equippers, look for an email from me with the registration details for this free interactive webinar. Now, if you're not an equipper and want to attend, become a monthly partner by calling 888-644-4144 or go online to equipradio.org. What an important conversation we're having today. Welcome back to Equip. This is Chris Brooks. Today, I'm grateful to be joined by Dr. Scott Ray. My only regret is I wish we had about three more hours to talk to Dr. Scott Ray. He is a wealth of um, wisdom and insightfulness that comes honestly from a lifetime of studying and advising in the area of bioethics. It's a type of um, wisdom you can have access to as a student at Biola University, also as a reader of his many articles and the book that we're featuring today, encouraging folks to consider getting moral choices. It's an introduction to ethics in its fourth edition. It's a little bit more uh, heady, uh, but yet I encourage you to uh, consider that. Those of you who may want to go into ethics. Uh, Scott, I didn't give you the opportunity because of time to comment. I'd love for you to comment on Kaylee's call. Kaylee called us right before the break. She lives in Illinois. She talked about having a trisomy 13 daughter, uh, but she really presented the other side of the coin. And these are stories that are often overlooked of the parents who say, I want to keep the child, but the medical community says, you can do that, but we're not going to provide you any medical care or support. I think, yeah, that's unconscionable for the medical community to say that. Um, and I think part of part of what I wanted to mention is that if if we're going to end a pregnancy based on a on a genetic abnormality, let's at least at least be be clear about which which the which burden we're looking at, because oftentimes I think we we confuse the burden on the parents with the burden on the child, and those are those are two different things, and the burden on the child. I think presume I think presumes what we talked about earlier that that unhappiness and a miserable life necessarily accompany these kinds of genetic challenges, and from the people you know from the callers who have called in, I mean anecdotally that's just that's not true. Again, that's not to, that's not to underestimate the challenges, but at least be honest about which which party the burden is really on and what's making that decision. Scott, I, again, I said earlier, I wish we had um, uh, three more hours. We don't. We got about three minutes. Uh, as we encounter more and more of these stories, and they're all over the headlines, uh, the major publications, I think in an election year, we're only going to hear more of them. What are some basic things you want us to consider as we read stories like this or how we should think to determine what is the right ethical choice here? I think for one, I I'd encourage your listeners to, to go beyond the position that's being stated and look for the reasons. What, what rationale is giving that to support the position that's being made? And what is the view of right and wrong that they are presuming? 
because everybody has a view of right and wrong. Even even people in the culture who say, look, you do you. Uh, and, you know, I want to make up my own moral rules for myself. That's a distinct view of right and wrong. Uh, and where, on what basis are they saying that that things are right or wrong? Those That, in my view, is a lot more interesting and a lot more revealing than the yes. position itself that's being taken. Yes. Uh, so the other thing I wanted to mention for your listeners, too, is that the Kate, Kate Cox case is not the only Texas abortion case that's going to the Supreme Court this next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the, the court in, federal court in Texas has suspended uh, the, the regulatory approval of the abortion pill, RU486. Yes. And the, the access to that, which, which now constitutes more than half of the abortions in this country are done with, with, with simply by pharmaceuticals. Um, and the access to that is also up for challenge in uh, 2024. But I would, I would urge your listeners to, to look carefully and you'll see this all the time in political speeches. Uh, when people give, you know, give moral positions, which they, they give moral positions all the time in political speeches, uh, that it's wrong to do this. It's morally right to do this. On on what basis do they say that things are right or wrong? Yeah, I think you know what you're what you're doing is helping us to uh, to think and to understand that there are underlying beliefs, presuppositions that we all have. It's not just Christians that have presuppositions. Every single one of us do when it comes to making our argument for our position. The real question is, what are those presuppositions? Are they defensible? And I do believe that when it comes to the issue of life, science is on our side, philosophy is on our side, and so is scripture. Dr. Scott Ray, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for the work you're doing at Biola and for the book, Moral Choices. So appreciate you, brother. Thank you, my friend. My pleasure. Great being with you and with your listeners. Friends, you can find out more about the work of Dr. Scott Ray and about Biola by going to our website, equipradio.org. Let's keep this conversation going. Until we're together again next time, as always, remember, Equip with Chris Brooks is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Hey there, friend. Chris Brooks here. You know, we don't regularly think of Jesus as a genius, but the stories he told are masterful works of reason and insight. Dr. Peter J. Williams joins me to give greater insight into the parable of the prodigal son as a masterpiece in storytelling. We'll learn how to imitate Jesus and why he's more than a storyteller on the next Equip. Listen live weekdays at 1 Eastern, noon Central on the Moody Radio app or equipradio.org.